Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Frank Marano. 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight. Anywhere you turn, uh, we're seeing a lot of disturbing allegations coming out of Ukraine as this war between Russia and Ukraine continues to uh, drag on a lot of people losing their lives, a lot of people losing their homes. Ukraine's president said Russian troops retreating from the north left thousands of mines in a deliberate deliberate act that he considered a war crime. Ukraine is investigating some 5,800 cases of alleged Russian war crimes, uh, and we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, a lot of disturbing images and hearing a lot of disturbing things coming out of Ukraine, including uh, the very serious accusation that uh, there could have been thousands of civilians targeted in Ukraine. A man who knows a thing or two about chemical weapons and knows a thing or two about war crimes is Scott Ritter. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and U.N.'s weapons inspector in Iraq, I believe in the Soviet Union as well. He's also the author of the book Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. Scott, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, uh, I I think a lot of folks listening are probably familiar with your record in public life. But uh, just so folks who may not be as familiar may not remember uh, what you what role you played with General Schwarzkopf and with the U.N., can you give us sort of the Reader's Digest version of your frame of experience dealing with the U.N., with international relations and with uh, weapons of mass destruction? Well, sure. I mean, I was commissioned as a Marine Corps officer in uh, in 1984. Um, and in 1988, uh, I was sent to the Soviet Union to uh, implement the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that was uh, signed between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, banning an entire class of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, I was actually the one of the first inspectors on the ground in the Soviet Union and uh, you know, played an important role in writing the book, so to speak, on on-site inspections in an arms control environment. I did that for two years, and uh, when that ended, I went back to the Marine Corps, got caught up in the uh, the, the Gulf War, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. I served on the, the headquarters of uh, General Schwarzkopf, was responsible for uh, over, you know, helping um, what we call the counter-scud uh, effort, uh, trying to interdict Iraqi scud missile launches before they could be fired against Israel or uh, the Gulf Arab states. Uh, when that war ended, uh, I left the Marine Corps, thought I was going to get a, a nice job in the civilian world. But as uh, Al Pacino said in The Godfather, <laughs> uh, every time I try to get out, they keep dragging me back in. And uh, I ended up getting asked to go to the United Nations to help create a uh, 
intelligence capability to do on-site inspection in Iraq, uh, this time to get Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. I did that for seven years. I resigned in 1998 uh, in protest to what I believed was the interference of the United States government and the work of the inspections program. And since that time, I've been a, uh, a critic of what I deem to be um, bad policy. It's not that I'm anti-American. I, sure. I think the role, the role of a good American citizen is to hold uh, his or her government accountable for you know, what they do in, in, in our name. And if the policy is bad and you have experience and you can say, you know, we should probably be doing this differently. You have a duty to speak out. I think so that's, that's the one I, thing that you have in, in common with all of our listeners, whether they're on the left or the right or somewhere in between, is uh, I think they would share that uh, share that belief. Now, uh, let's talk about the Russia-Ukraine situation. The conventional wisdom since this war began is some version of uh, Putin is Hitler. He invented he invaded a neighboring country even though he didn't need to and had very little justification in doing so. And he's a madman and he is the 100 percent villain in this whole affair. Uh, do you do you agree by and large with that narrative? No, I actually take the opposite approach. Um, you know, again, I'm not here to sing you know Vladimir Putin's praises. Uh, he, other people can do that. I'm just a realistic. Um, I have a realistic assessment of. Russia in the modern age. And uh, I recognize that as early as 2007, uh, Vladimir Putin had been complaining that uh, the expansion of NATO in the aftermath of the Cold War eastward represented a threat to to Russia's security. And that uh, Russia had been on the record telling the United States and NATO that uh, continued expansion would be a red line that uh, Russia would view uh, as an existential threat to its security. I also uh, recognize that in starting in 2014, there was a um, there was violence taking place in the ethnic Russian dominated region of Ukraine known as Donbass, uh, fighting that over the course of eight years killed 14,000 um, Russian speakers and that Russia took umbrage to this. Uh, I'm not going to justify the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but what I am going to say is that from the Russian perspective, uh, they believe that they had every right under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, uh, citing preemptive collective self-defense, uh, to, to go into Ukraine to stop what they believed was the um, genocidal attack uh, from the Ukrainians on the, the ethnic Russians. So, you know, Russia believes that it was justified. You know, that's that's just the Russian belief. Uh, that's not Hitler-like. That's that's a country expressing its legitimate, um, you know, self-defense interests. Um, and, and you know, and that it'll be up to the world to decide whether or not Russia was justified to going in or not. But there's a difference between having a a, a difference of opinion and calling somebody evil. And, you know, the the modern day equivalent of Adolf Hitler. Mm. Uh, Now, we are seeing some very disturbing reports that more than 10,000 civilians may have died in Russia's siege of Mariupol. That's the word from the mayor of Mariupol. A lot of reports of uh, civilian deaths in Bucha. Uh, There's a lot of charges of war crimes, and the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has indicated this is a, a genocide. 
what you've seen, do you believe those reports are true, number one? And two, if they are true, would that constitute either war crimes or a genocide in your judgment? I will say this, that uh, the fighting in Mariupol was uh, done in some of the the, the worst possible conditions, uh, you know, urban warfare. And if there's a civilian population that was caught up in that fighting, there's a very real chance that they suffered extensive casualties. So I'm not um, I'm not going to challenge uh, any assertion of, you know, thousands, even up to 10,000 dead. That is absolutely a possibility. Um, and the same thing throughout Ukraine. The, uh, you know, the reality is in modern warfare, um, civilians pay a price. The, the, you know, in, in the history of modern war, I think they've shown that you know, the ratio of uh, civilian dead to combatant dead is generally one to one. And we know that the Ukrainians have suffered close to 20,000 dead soldiers and the Russians have suffered thousands of dead of their own. So it would not be surprising to me if there were over 20,000 dead Ukrainian civilians uh, so far because of the fighting. Now, whether this con- these deaths constitute a war crime or not is dependent upon the individual circumstances uh, behind their death. Uh, civilians die in war. That's just a sad reality of war. It's why war is a tragedy and should be avoided at all costs. But uh, the fact that a civilian dies does not automatically constitute a war crime. There has to be an intent on the part of the perpetrator to deliberately target a civilian or civilian property in a manner which has zero military relevance. That means that the intent is from the start to do harm to a civilian or, or a civilian target. And you know, if the Ukrainians are going to make an allegation that this was the case, then it should be investigated. Uh, every, every allegation should be investigated. But I will say that we know the Washington Post itself has published uh, that the Ukrainians have decided to fight in areas where there are civilians. The Ukrainians have refused to evacuate civilians from these areas as they are required by international law. And therefore, the Ukrainians, this is the Washington Post, the Ukrainians have created de facto human shields. Mm. So if a civilian is in an apartment complex and the Ukrainians have put military objects in that apartment complex, that apartment complex is now a legitimate target of war. And any civilian casualties are the tragic consequences of this. And I would say that civilian deaths in Mariupol probably fall under um, the category of the Ukrainians using civilians as human shields more than Russia deliberately targeting Ukrainian civilians. We're also hearing very disturbing reports from Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian officials that have now accused Russia of dropping chemical weapons on the city of Mariupol, causing troops and civilians alike to develop respiratory illness. Uh, The Azaz Regiment, which is a unit of the National Guard of Ukraine, posted to Telegram yesterday, Russian occupation forces used a poisonous substance of unknown origin against Ukrainian military and civilians in the city of Mariupol, which was dropped from an enemy unmanned aerial vehicle. The victims have respiratory failure and vestibulo attactic syndrome. As someone that knows about Russia and that knows about chemical weapons, what's your view? Do you believe that this occurred? Do you believe the Russians are now using chemical weapons in Ukraine? The use of chemical weapons would be a, a, a violation of international law. Russia is a signatory to the Chemical Weapons Convention, and Russia 
has certified that it has uh, eliminated all of its uh, stockpiles of chemical weapons, that it no longer possesses them, and the international community has certified Russia to be compliant in this regard. So if Russia is using chemical weapons, it is a, a violation of international law, and it would put Russia on the wrong side of history. So you have to ask yourself, what would be required um, on the ground? What is the gain that Russia would get on the ground to justify taking this risk? And my, my, my suggestion is that there's nothing in Mariupol uh, that's worth this risk. We're literally talking about the final mopping up of several thousand remnant forces who have dug themselves into an industrial area and are being reduced uh, through brutal fighting by uh, Ru Russian forces. Um, I, I just don't believe this. This unit, the Azov Battalion, is more than just a nationalist uh, territorial battalion of the Ukrainian army. It's a unit that has a history of affiliation with neo-Nazi ideology and has been singled out by Russia as being uh, the unit that has perpetrated the greatest crimes against the Russian speakers. So there is no love lost between the two. And I would suggest that what we're seeing here is a, a desperate propaganda ploy by a unit singled out for death and destruction in their final moments of their existence. Hey, people are just tuning in. We're talking with Scott Ritter. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and U.N.'s weapon inspector. How would you like to see this uh, come to an end? And what role should the United States be playing at this juncture in order to bring this to an end? Uh, there are those like Zelensky that not only want a lot more military aid, but want the establishment of a no-fly zone. What say you? How do you think this all comes to an end for Ukraine, for Russia, and for the United States? Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's two questions. How would I like to see it end right now? Um, let's just understand that the people that are paying the price for this war are the citizens of Ukraine. Millions of them have been made homeless. Millions are refugees. Hundreds of thousands have, uh, have, have suffered direct consequences of this conflict, with tens of thousands possibly dead. And the longer this war goes on, the longer these innocent Ukrainian civilians are going to suffer. And so I, would, I wish this war had never started, and uh, I would love for this war to end right now that, so that there has to be no more suffering. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. This war is going to end when Russia achieves its stated military objectives, which are the, the denazification. Russia has singled out units like the Azov Battalion that you discussed in Mariupol and others as um, you know, having, having embraced and, and acted on this odious ideology, an ideology that my grandfather and millions of Americans' grandfathers traveled overseas in the 1940s to eliminate that of, you know, you know, Nazi Germany. It's alive and well and living in Ukraine today, according to Russia, and they are going to eradicate it. The second is the demilitarization of Ukraine. And what that means is that even though Ukraine is not a NATO member, since 2014, NATO has been training the Ukrainian military to NATO standards, and Russia views this as a threat. So they want to eliminate the NATO infrastructure that exists today in Ukraine, and those two military objectives are to achieve a third political objective, which is the neutrality of Ukraine, meaning that Ukraine will not be permitted to join NATO. Um, the United States role, I believe that the United States had a role in facilitating the conditions that led to the Russian invasion. And so right now, if the United States wants to continue the suffering of the Ukrainian people, 
then continue providing weapons to President Zelensky. The reality is this war is lost. Ukraine has lost this war. Um, there's going to be more fighting on the ground that will, will, will bring an end to the Ukrainian military. And it, the longer it goes, the more the Ukrainian people suffer. If the United States believes that it can uh, stop this by intervening militarily, understand a no-fly zone or any NATO troop presence on the ground in Ukraine will bring about a force-on-force conflict between Russia and NATO. These are two nuclear-armed entities, and uh, we increase the possibility of a nuclear conflict that may will probably not be limited to Europe, but involve a global exchange of nuclear weapons, meaning the end of the world. This is very serious stuff here. Uh, this is not a game. Um, and as tragic as the Russian invasion and ongoing fighting in Ukraine is, I believe a, a global thermonuclear war uh, would be even more tragic. Mm. At this point in time, we, we need to understand that this war in Ukraine is a reality. It's happening. And the best thing we can do is bring it to, bring it to an end. And if, unfortunately for NATO and the United States, that means that Russia will probably get its way in Ukraine. Uh, the goal here isn't to, uh, you know, allow this thing to spin out of control and, and suck everybody into global nuclear annihilation. It's to mitigate the damage that's already been done to ensure that this conflict does not spread further. On Sunday, CBS News on uh, 60 Minutes had the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, on their program, and they referred to him as a legend who stands between the Russian army and the free world. Uh, This comes on the heels of some polling last week that shows Zelensky, the most popular world leader among Americans of any world leader in the world, including uh, far more popular than than our own president, Joe Biden. Uh, Do you think the media is making a mistake here by building up uh, Zelensky in such a manner. We've certainly seen what's happened when other people have been built up uh, by the media only to come crashing down. People like Andrew Cuomo and maybe even Anthony Fauci come to mind. Do you think that the media coverage of Zelensky does j- journalism a bit of a disservice? Uh, the short answer is yes, and I'll, I'll explain why. I have no uh, personal animosity towards as the president Zelensky, um, but understand this: he's not a professional politician. He, you know, he he's a smart guy. He was trained as a lawyer, but he spent his life as a comedian, mm-hmm. and that's okay. I I love comedians. He was a star of a TV show in Ukraine called "A Servant of the People." Um, it, it's about a, a school teacher who becomes president of Ukraine. So he's a comedian who plays a president on TV. I've seen the show. It's a wonderful show. I, I've it's seen it too, fun. actually. It's great, actually. It's, it's a great show. And I, I just, I, I love the character. I like him as an actor. I think it's great. But this is the equivalent of the United States being in one of the greatest domestic crises of its time and Americans turning into the West Wing and deciding that Martin Sheen should be president of the United States. I love Martin Sheen. I think he's a great actor, and I thought he did a great job in West Wing. He should never be president of the United States. He has no experience. Zelensky was picked by an oligarch who controlled the media empire where this TV show, this, this, this series uh, was, was, was played. And that oligarch said, hey, the Ukrainian people are so fed up with the 
the, the status quo in terms of the political corruption, that maybe we can take this guy whom all the Ukrainian people see as a president and actually make him president. And they did. Zelensky won the election with 78 percent of the vote. Most many of those votes were from the pro-Russian, the Russian speaking population right. in Ukraine who viewed him as a peacemaker, as a guy who could make peace. But early on, it became clear that this comedian turned politician didn't have what it takes to overcome all of the obstacles. This is no no fault of his. Nobody could have succeeded. But, you know, for instance, when he said, I want to make peace with Russia, he he offered to, to have a ceasefire. And the Azov Battalion, those Nazis we're talking about, uh, were down fighting in the Donbass region. And they said, no, he went to visit them. There's a video, and it's humiliating to watch, where he confronts them and says, why aren't you disarming? And they said, haven't you heard? We're going to tell you what's really going on. He said, what's going on is I'm the president. And they went, we don't care. We don't care that you're president. We're going to do what we want to do because we're the Azov Battalion. Mm. Um, and ultimately, Zelensky... Uh, was was confronted that if he tried to make peace with Russia, one of the heads of the Azov Battalion said, if you do this, we will hang you by the neck on the main street in Kiev for all to see. He made a video saying this. It, it's not like he did it in secret, right out front. And nobody could do anything because these Nazis are throughout, are, are permeated throughout the entire Ukrainian structure. Zelensky went from 78% to 23%. Zelensky, in order to survive political, that's approval rating. In order to survive, he had to arrest all of his political opposition, and he shut down all of the uh, opposition newspapers, uh, TV shows, radio. This is not the the king of democracy here. This is a man who had turned into a dictator to survive, and because his popularity was so low, he had to get in bed with the Nazis, the people that were threatening to kill him. Zelensky had to bring them closer and, and, and promoted them to be, you know, in senior people in the military and the police and his government, etc. This is all that happened leading up to the war. So right before this war began, Zelensky was the furthest thing from the epitome of, um, you know, the brave democratic leaders you could imagine. Mm. Now, the war happens and the media starts turning this guy into the modern day equivalent of you know, Winston Churchill, sort of a modern day uh, King Leonidas leading his 300 against the against the Russians. Uh, That transformation doesn't happen overnight. Zelensky is very much today the product of one of the one of the best propaganda um, exercises in modern history. And the Western media has fallen for it, helped sustain it and helped build him up. And I think you hit it right on the head. I think this guy is tragically doomed to fall because he's about to lose this war in a way that uh, most people I don't think recognize. They've fallen into this, the, the belief that somehow Ukraine is uh, defeating the Russians, pushing them back, etc. I think in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see ground truth, which is a strategic Russian military victory on the scale that we haven't witnessed since the end of the Second World War. And Zelensky is going to have to sue for peace. At that point in time, the world's going to deal with the reality, reality of what Zelensky is, which is a tragically failed and flawed politician put in one of the worst possible situations a human being could find him, himself in. And he's going to be uh, reduced to a defeated leader of a defeated nation uh, that has suffered egregiously in a war that really didn't need to be fought. The real tragedy here is that Zelensky could have ended this war before it began simply by agreeing to Russia's conditions of not joining NATO. Mm. It is a, a tragedy on so many levels. 
In, in terms of the media's role here, I, I read a report last uh, yesterday, actually, that indicated that the media has been they've actually covered the major broadcast networks, ABC, CBS and NBC News have actually spent more time covering the war in Ukraine than they had covering the American invasion of Iraq uh, 20 years ago at this same point. Now, isn't that pretty alarming that the networks are spent more time covering Russia's invasion of a neighboring country than our own country's invasion of a, of a foreign country? No, I, I believe it is alarming. I, 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 I have uh, I, I've taken great umbrage at uh, the way the mainstream media has approached this conflict um, and, and, and the bias that's that's built into their coverage. I, I have no problem with the news reporting things. And sometimes the news reports things that are controversial, that that's difficult to you know get the totality of fact. And so they, you know, they, 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 they might have to be incomplete in their story and such. That's responsible journalism. Sure. But what we're seeing here is irresponsible journalism where they're running with um, a story without checking all of their leads they're 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 leading off with um with suggestive uh, uh things for instance that russia is evil that putin is evil that zelensky is great that ukraine is great um i i think that the 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 middle is composed of a, a whole bunch of gray I'm not it's not a black and white situation it's very gray very nebulous very uh, mixed very confused and the, the media should report it as such, but also the emphasis that's being placed on this conflict. Why? Why are we emphasizing this? Why are we heading this direction, especially when we failed to take a similar um, approach in terms of the intensity of coverage in, in a war that we ourselves waged uh, back in 2003? Um, you know, also, so- ask most Americans if they know what's going on in Yemen right now. They couldn't tell you. <laughs> Yemen, Syria. Um, you know, any, anywhere else. And, and to be honest, I mean, I, I, I don't want to disparage, you know, the average American, but uh, they don't know what's going on in Ukraine either. Uh, they, they, they could parrot what they hear on TV, but what you're hearing and seeing on TV in the United States is so far removed from reality that, you, you know, if all you do is watch TV and repeat what you hear on TV, um, I can honestly say that you know nothing about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, you, you're talking about these complex. sort of unconfirmed reports of Russians just butchering civilians and so forth. That well, I'll give you another example too. Yes, first of all, yes, I, I, the, the situation in Bucha is far more complicated than with the way it's been portrayed on TV. But also, let's the missile that hit the train station. Um, every day we're hearing, you know, the Russians launched a missile against a train station in this Ukrainian city and killing, you know, dozens of people. Uh, but what they're not saying is that missile, um, the Tochka U, uh, is not in the inventory of the Russian military. It is in the inventory of the Ukrainian military. Mm. Uh, the reverse azimuth leads to territory that was controlled by the Ukrainian military. It means it was launched from territory controlled by the military. And the serial number, and this is the kicker, the serial number proves that the missile was in the inventory of the Ukrainian army. So all of that suggests that this was a missile fired by the Ukrainian army that I don't believe deliberately hit the town, but only Ukrainians can answer that, but, but struck and killed. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's the only direction the facts can take you. But because the Ukrainian government said that Russia did it, Everybody's running with right. that story. Right. Um, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. I'm going to let you go in a minute. I saw last week 
that you were thrown off Twitter. Then I saw yesterday Newsday or Newsweek, excuse me, Newsweek reported that you were reinstated to Twitter. But I tried to go on to your Twitter. And when I click on it, it still says this account has been suspended. Why did you get suspended from Twitter? Were you, in fact, reinstated? What do you think that this says about the role these big tech companies and social media is playing in terms of the free flow of information in terms of important issues like this? Well, I was banned from Twitter last week um, based on upon a tweet I put out that challenged the uh, the, 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 the current narrative that uh, Russia committed the crime in Bucha. I, I said the data leads me to believe that Ukraine committed the crime in Bucha and that if the president of the United States is seeking to transfer responsibility from Ukraine onto Russia uh, without any factual basis and the thing that triggered me was when the president came out and publicly said that Russia was doing this and that Vladimir Putin was a criminal, um, which implies that he's received a briefing. He has some inside information. But then the Pentagon immediately came out and said, we got nothing. We don't have any additional information. We can't confirm what the Ukrainians are saying, which means the president is running with rumor put out by the Ukrainian government without any fact-based uh, speculation. That's in itself, uh, you know, prima facie uh, war crime, seeking to uh, shift responsibility for a mass murder off of the guilty party onto another party. So I wrote a tweet critical of this. I was banned for this, accused of uh, of harassment uh, and, 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 and willing violence on people. I, I challenged it. Uh, the, tweet, the, the Twitter came back and said, we've read your, your, your appeal and we agree. No rules were violated. They reinstated me only to resuspend me for a similar tweet questioning oh, the narrative. Um, I've appealed that so far with no luck, but what, what, what's clear here is that by challenging the, the, um, the, the, the publicly accepted narrative of what's going on on the ground, uh, I apparently am in violation of, of, of Twitter rules. I'm not harassing anybody. I'm not threatening anybody. I'm just simply putting out an alternate set of facts. And here's the problem. Uh, in a nation where we embrace free speech, uh, and one of the reasons why we embrace it is, it, you know, we're, we're dealing with a nation uh, whose democracy is dependent upon uh, the the fact-based debate, discussion, and dialogue on the part of its citizens to empower themselves with knowledge and information so that they can better hold those whom they elect to office accountable for what they do in their name. That is what democracy is all about, and that can only occur when there is the free exchange of of uh, information, uh, you know, an informed debate, as I said. Twitter is an ideal platform for this, where people can sure. put things out and, and they can interact. Um, and the decision by Twitter to limit this discussion by arbitrarily setting rules uh, the, to deny uh, one side of a of a very complex discussion, a right to articulate its point of view is the antithesis of freedom of speech. Yeah. And while it may not be a direct violation of the Constitution, because the Constitution speaks only of uh, Congress's uh, ability to limit free speech, as an American, everybody should take umbrage at any corporate entity who has a monopoly on this kind of uh, interaction to impose rules that are restrictive of free speech. Now, however people feel about the Ukraine situation, I would hope uh, that they would agree with that. And it's one of the reasons I'm so grateful to work for a company like this one that really promotes and encourages free speech. 
Lastly, let me uh, ask uh, end by asking you about this. Uh, yesterday, I had on Pat Buchanan, and he said some things about Ukraine and Russia and so forth, made, uh, I thought, some very interesting points. And then I was deluged with emails, text messages, Facebook messages of people uh, bringing up things that he wrote 30 years ago that have nothing to do with anything we spoke about. But they used this as an attempt to sort of diminish his credibility on everything we spoke about. The same thing when I spoke spoke to Ralph Nader on this subject the other day. The same thing when I spoke to Max Blumenthal on this subject a week or two ago. I know uh, that there are going to be some folks uh, that ask me after after we end this discussion about your previous arrests and the fact that you've actually served prison time. Uh, explain to folks preemptively why any issues you've had with the law should not uh, diminish your credibility on the issue of international affairs. Sure. I mean, first of all, I'll just say that, you know, my point of view is that I was wrongly prosecuted, wrongly convicted. I'm innocent. I'm continuing to fight the conviction. That's my issue. Um, And it's 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 an issue which, frankly, most of the people out there aren't equipped to engage in the discussion with because they Mm -hmm. don't know the details. The other point is, I don't care what they think about that. It doesn't matter. It has no relevance. Uh, I could have. played baseball for the New York Mets and gone to the World Series and been an MVP. And and that has no bearing on my background as a weapons inspector and an intelligence officer. You, you can't mix apples and oranges. So if you want to focus on one aspect of my personal life, um, feel free. You can have whatever opinion you want, but it has no bearing on the facts I bring to the table about the issue of what's going on in Ukraine today. You can't, uh, they, 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 that's non-transferable data set. It's purely a 